0: Okay, if you can start wrapping up your conversations and grab a seat. We've uh, come to the point in our service that we open up the Word together. Um, if, uh, if we haven't had the chance of meeting yet, my name is Tarr George. I'm one of the pastoral staff here. It's very nice to meet you. And if you're just uh, joining us, uh, we've been in a sermon series now on the resurrection. and We've been asking this question, what does the resurrection mean for my life now? How should the resurrection of Jesus Christ live how I live in the present? And so, in your bulletin, you have um, our scripture reading for today, which is verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 34. Uh, we're going to spend, be spending most of our time, although we're reading the whole thing, we'll be spending most of our time on verses 29 to 34. If you want to look at um, the, the previous verses, you can uh, tune in to the YouTube channel, and you can hear uh, Graham preaching from that from the previous week. But this is our focus for uh, this morning. So, please give your attention to the reading of God's
1: Word. Still up. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 to 34. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man also has by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead for as in adam all die so also in christ shall all be made alive but each in his own order christ the first fruits then at his coming those who belong to christ then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to god then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Dilip. Well, that's a fun passage we have this morning. (laughs) Let's see how we do. Well, it was a few years ago when uh, Marvel Studios brought us the first Black Panther movie. It was hugely successful, I think, in no small part due to actor Chadwick Boseman and his portrayal of the main character, T'Challa. T'Challa, for many of you who don't know, is the king of the utopian nation of Wakanda, and the Marvel superhero known as the Black Panther. Well, people loved the movie, and with sales of $1.3 billion, it was no surprise when Marvel Studios announced a sequel. Of course, the announcement of Black Panther 2 had fans ecstatic. That is, until they found out the tragic news. You see, unknown to the public, Chadwick had been battling stage 3 colon cancer for some time. And in August of 2020, the actor succumbed to his illness. Over the months that followed, Marvel tossed and turned about what this might mean for the franchise. What would happen to Black Panther 2 now that the Black Panther was gone? Well, in January of 2021, Marvel announced his decision not to recast its main character. There's only one Chadwick, and he's not with us, said Marvel Studios VP. Our king, unfortunately, has died in real life, not just in fiction. And we are taking time to see what we should do next. You see, Marvel Studios was faced with a bit of a dilemma. They wanted to honor Chadwick and create a great sequel. But his death presented something of an obstacle. They began to ask this question, what do we do now without the king? Well, to everyone's surprise, Marvel decided to push forward with the sequel, which left fans utterly perplexed. Social media went into a tizzy, and people began asking, what's the point of a Black Panther movie without the iconic Black Panther? You know, it might seem like a trivial question this morning, but here's why I think it matters. You see, underneath it all, I think people were really wrestling with this central question. If the hero is really gone, And why continue the story? If the king is really dead, then what's even the point? You know, curiously, I think our text this morning invites us to consider this very question. Because in our passage today, Paul reiterates how futile the Christian life would be if Jesus, the King of Israel, stayed really and truly dead. He's been saying, if the king is not raised, you're wasting your time. You might as well wrap it up. If there's no resurrection, what's the point of a sequel? Why bother with the Christian life? And so Paul here in our passage poses three rhetorical questions to get us thinking. He asks us to consider what's the point of the Christian life? If there's no resurrection, then why be baptized? That's his first point. Why undergo suffering? That's his second point. And why not live for the present world? That's his third point. Why be baptized, why undergo suffering, and why not live for the present world? We'll begin by looking at this first point. You know, if you're just joining us, Paul has been writing to the Corinthians about the reality of Jesus' resurrection. He's been teaching them that Jesus died for their sins, that He was buried, and then raised to life on the third day. You can read about that actually earlier in chapter 15. And his point, is this is all this, that in the same way that Jesus was raised, you and I will one day rise to eternal life also. We will. And this comes to head, particularly in the Corinthian church, because there are some in the congregation who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Paul takes real issue with this. It bothers him. He thinks it's absolutely critical to understanding the gospel. In fact, he says earlier in verse 13 that if there is no resurrection of the dead not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, well, then the gospel is a false hope. Your faith is in vain, and all of us, all of us are still in our sins. He's essentially saying that if there is no resurrection of the dead, the Christian life would be absolutely meaningless. There would be no point in doing anything that Jesus commands, least of all, baptism. But, says Paul, because the resurrection is true, it changes everything. And to prove it, Paul begins by highlighting their practice of baptism. He says in verse 29, if there is no resurrection, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, Pause here for a second, because this might be one of the most convoluted passages in the entire Bible. (laughs) Scholars are quite puzzled about what Paul is talking about here, and this has led to a whole range of interpretations about what it might mean to be baptized on behalf of the dead. Let me say briefly, whatever Paul intends, I think it's significant that he neither condemns nor condones their practice. Rather, he simply affirms that it's happening in the community, but makes no further comment It doesn't seem to bother him that much. On that basis, I think we can assume that whatever the Corinthians are doing is either perfectly legitimate and consistent with the Bible's teachings, or their practice is such a minor offense that Paul doesn't think it necessary to correct them, meaning to say that whatever kind of baptism is in view here, I think should be understood in light of what Paul teaches elsewhere about baptism in his letters. So. Where does that leave us? Well, scholars have speculated that this baptism could refer to a number of things. It could be a person baptized in honor of a dead person, maybe someone who had shared the gospel with them. It could be a person being baptized in anticipation of their own impending death, almost like a conversion at the end of their lives. Or it could just be a way of saying that a person was baptized in the same spirit and manner as the many other faithful Christians who had already died in their midst. You know, it's hard to be certain, but whatever the case, here's Paul's main point. He's saying that the very practice of baptism is inherently connected to this belief in the resurrection. He's saying, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why on earth would you be baptized? If the dead are not raised, then baptism is just plain meaningless. And to really understand what Paul means here, I think we need to look at what he writes about baptism elsewhere. Let's look at Romans 6, for example, because in Romans 6, Paul writes this. He says, do you not know, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in the newness of life. He's saying that the resurrection of Jesus is already producing incredible spiritual benefits right now for the believer. Through baptism, we are united to Jesus in His death, and we are enabled by His resurrection to live as born-again people now. You follow me? But then he continues, for if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Pay attention to what he's saying. He said we shall be united with Jesus. This is a future hope for the Christian. The believer gets to one day participate in a resurrection just like that of Jesus. And we get to live with him eternally. Do you understand The practice of baptism is meant to remind the believer of his or her resurrection life with Jesus. That's why it matters. That's why it matters. And accordingly, this is why Paul takes such issue with the Corinthians, because they're partaking in baptism but denying the very reality that baptism is meant to proclaim. Paul is basically saying, don't you understand, baptism illustrates the hope of the resurrection. Let me say, if you are here and you are baptized believer of Jesus, this is what your baptism is meant to proclaim to you. And this is really important because most of us don't have this be your baptism. And I know it because I hear it when I talk to you. We don't. Many of you, I think, come to baptism with this realization that your life's a mess and you've been running away from God and there's sin in your life that you just need Jesus to deal with, all of which is good and necessary. Please hear that. But our view of baptism, according to the apostle, is is really quite limited because most of us come to baptism knowing something about what we are being saved from, sin and death, but we have little to no idea about what we are being saved for. I want to tell you this morning that it is the resurrection. And this matters profoundly because when we think of baptism, we don't instinctively think of the resurrection. We don't. Rather, I think we instinctively think of the cross and all the ways that God calls us to die, to ourselves, to our sin, to selfishness, and all the ways of the world. Tell me honestly that you don't feel that way when you think about the gospel. Because even if you're a mature believer, I think you learned something subconsciously at your baptism that you've carried with you throughout the years. It's the reason I think that so many of us feel hopeless and rudderless in the spiritual life right now. I think it's this, that like the Corinthians, we have forgotten the hope of the resurrection. Let me ask you this, is it possible that the reason your faith feels lifeless right now is maybe because you've been so focused on how Christ calls you to die that you've completely lost sight of how Jesus wants to make you come alive. Do you see the problem here? We are functionally practicing only half the gospel. It's just not enough. It's not enough. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that a baptism, a faith without the resurrection, is utterly pointless and futile. He's saying, if Christ is not raised, then what's the point? If there is no resurrection hope for you, why live the Christian life? Why be baptized at all? But Christ has been raised, and so baptism and the Christian life actually have tremendous meaning. This is Paul's first point. Now, secondly, Paul asks the question. He asks this question: Why undergo suffering? And if you read the text, he seems to move almost abruptly to the next point, and it feels like an unrelated topic. But it's not. It's not. He's been highlighting various behaviors and practices that don't make much sense without the resurrection, and now he turns to the topic of Christian suffering. He says in verse 30, "Why are we in danger every hour? Every hour we're in danger." Paul has been traveling around from place to place, telling people about Jesus, risking his life, being ridiculed, beaten, and thrown into prison for his belief in the resurrection. It's been an onslaught of constant opposition and suffering. In fact, in verse 32, he writes this What do I gain? What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? What's he saying? Well, scholars think that Paul is likely using imagery to describe the kind of brutal, almost animalistic opposition that he faced in his ministry. His opponents are out for blood, and he's straining, he's straining with every fiber of his being to stay faithful to Jesus. He's saying to the Corinthians, if I didn't believe in the resurrection, why would I put myself through that? Why? Why? In fact, in his second letter to Corinthians, he goes on into much greater detail about what he has suffered. He says, "'Five times I received lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and night and day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers.'" in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Danger, danger, danger. Even now as he writes this letter to them. I mean, you have to ask, what would make a person live like this? Paul answers, only the hope of the resurrection because it is worth suffering for. And I think it's here that you and I have to think very carefully about whether we truly believe that also. Do we believe that strongly in the resurrection? I'd imagine that for most of us here, the gospel was offered to us without significant cost. We heard a message, we prayed a prayer, we started going to church, reading the Bible, and being part of a small group you experience Christ's salvation. But have you suffered for it? I don't think I have. I don't know that I have. Men and women, you need to know that Paul's sufferings are not just unique to him. As we sit here right now in these pews, there are people right now being killed for their faith, tortured, imprisoned, separated from their families, torn from their homes and possessions. There are churches being bombed, Bibles being burned, pastors being butchered, all because they believe in a resurrected Jesus. Make no mistake, suffering goes hand in hand with salvation. You don't like to talk about it, though, because it seems, it makes the gospel seem that it's less desirable. But Paul didn't shy away from that one bit. On the contrary, his sufferings only make the resurrection that much more glorious. We ought to think about that. And listen, this is not to say that your life should look exactly like Paul's. Our cultural context in Toronto is quite different from other parts of the world. God may not call us to suffer in quite the same way, but we would be remiss to think that we won't suffer at all. Paul points said that we are in danger every hour. This is not just about him. And he is suffering, he says, explicitly because he is telling people about Jesus and the resurrection. The good news of the gospel is so good to him that he is not only willing to suffer for it, but he is passionate, passionate about sharing it with others. Which should make us ask the pressing question Christian, When was the last time that you talked to someone about the hope that you have in Jesus Christ? Do you remember? Is that even something that's on your radar right now? You know, I have to confess that for all my preaching, this is an area of so much weakness in my life. It is. I want God to change that about me that I would love Jesus to the extent that I would be more willing to stick out my neck for Him, risk being humiliated and ridiculed for Him, and maybe even lose more than that if He should ask it of me. And listen, I want that for you too. I want that for you too. Because Paul here seems to imply that if you are truly living out your faith boldly and making disciples, you should expect that some form of suffering will come your way. It's just the nature of the gospel. In our congregation right now, I know that there are many of you who have lost jobs and promotions because of your faith. Others of you I know have lost close friends and colleagues because you refused to compromise on the Bible's teachings. And several of you have even told me in tears how you have lost the love and respect of your families because you made a decision to follow Jesus. I want you to hear from this text that your suffering is not in vain. God sees that, and He honors that. I think you understand the hope of the resurrection better than many of us here this morning. I'm grateful for your example, and I thank God for you, I do. At the same time, I think there are others of us here who've maybe never experienced any kind of hardship or rejection for being a Christian. I say this to you in love. If that's never happened to you, it's worth asking, am I living as intentionally for Jesus as I ought to? Do the people in my life actually know what I'm really about? Or is it possible that I'm just blending in with the rest of my culture? You see, the uncomfortable truth about this passage is that the resurrection life is costly. It entails suffering. To follow Jesus and obey His commands may hurt your reputation, your relationships, and your respect in all your circles. You might even lose more than that. But as Paul reminds us earlier in our passage, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. Do you understand Grace Toronto, I think Paul's words matter, really matter for us as a church. The spiritual landscape of our city and country is changing quickly. You don't have to look too far to see that believers and Christian organizations are increasingly being squeezed all across the country. I don't know what the Lord might call us to suffer in the years ahead, but this passage teaches us that we ought not to be naive. It may be that we soon find ourselves in the shoes of the Apostle Paul. Where will we turn when the beasts of Toronto come knocking? Paul says, you turn to the resurrection. You turn to the resurrection. Because you see, the resurrection changes everything. Men and women, we are awaiting more glory, more comfort, more joy, and more life with Jesus than you and I can even imagine here in this life. This is what Paul is saying. If you truly understand that you are going to live forever in glorious eternity with Jesus, it means very little that you should have to suffer for a time. That's what Paul is saying. You see, the resurrection gives us good hope, like real hope in suffering. And this is Paul's second point. Now, Third and finally, Paul asks this question, why not live for the present world? He's continuing his argument and saying if there's no resurrection, nothing about the Christian life actually makes sense. If you don't have an eternity to live for, you should just live for the here and now. Really, you should. There's no point. But if you truly believe in the resurrection, you don't have to live like that you don't. And so he says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we die. Now commentators think that this was a fairly accepted notion in the culture when Paul was writing, and it's been infiltrating the church. It's this broad idea that we don't know when we'll die, so we might as well enjoy as much of life as we can today because nothing else matters. And Paul's really quite frustrated with the Corinthians because they've actually bought into this thinking. They're saying, if there's no resurrection, well, I should just squeeze as much pleasure, comfort, and meaning as I can out of this life. After all, you only live once. And I think it's here that we need to ask ourselves if we bought into the same kind of thinking, are we truly living for the resurrection? Or like the Corinthians, are we instead living for the here and now? Let me say, I think in a city like Toronto, so many of us just find ourselves running on an endless treadmill. We're so driven. We're so driven. We're always looking for the next experience, the next degree, the next great opportunity. We are obsessed with living the fullest, largest life possible. If you don't believe me, just look at your social media. We're always talking about the hottest restaurant we just visited, the exotic vacation we just had, or the extravagant home reno we just had done. (laughs) You ever notice that? I think we build our lives on these extravagant 10-year plans, plotting out how we're going to graduate, travel the world, buy a home, get married, have kids, and retire comfortably. And listen, these are not bad things in themselves. I want to be very clear about that. But if everything about our decision-making is geared towards living our best life now, are we really making space in our lives for a resurrection hope? Because I found that often the acid test for that question comes when life takes those things away. I mean, where do you put your hope when you see the housing prices move further and further out of your reach? Where do you lay your hope when after years of searching, you still haven't found a life partner? Where do you put your hope when after months and months of trying, you're still not pregnant? Where do you set your hope when your health just continues to deteriorate and doesn't seem to get any better? You see, the culture won't serve you then because your quote-unquote best life has just been taken from you but not so if you believe in the resurrection." Paul is saying, don't you see? This life and everything you're going through, whether good or bad, is just a speck, a speck compared to the eternity that awaits you. Men and women, you have the promise of eternal life in you. You don't have to squeeze every ounce of pleasure and comfort from this world because your best life, your best life is yet to come. But for the person who doesn't know Jesus, they don't have that hope. For them, there's nothing else to live for but the here and now. And Paul's saying, you ought not to take your cues from them. Don't do it. Which is why I think Paul writes in verse 33 don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. He's saying there are people and voices that you're listening to right now who have no knowledge of God, but you're letting them shape your Christian life. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Wake up, he says. Get sober. It's this strange metaphor that he uses to describe the condition of the Corinthian church. He claims that they're in this kind of drunken stupor. They're not thinking or seeing straight. I don't know if you've ever been drunk before, but there's something about it that really dulls the senses. You're just following the most base instincts, moving from one fix to another. All you're concerned about is what's directly right in front of your face. You have zero awareness of what's actually going on around you, and you're just stumbling through life aimlessly, trying to quench your thirst with whatever you can find. Can you picture that? That's how Paul describes the Corinthians in this passage. That's what it looks like to live only for the present world. He's saying, if you call yourself a Christian, but don't live for the resurrection, you really just have this distorted reality. Your vision is hazy, and you're just ambling through life like a drunk. Don't do that. Don't do that. You're better than that. It's not what God has called you to do. Because, Paul says, that if we continue that way, we're bound for all kinds of trouble, just like the Corinthians. He concludes in our passage by talking about sin in verse 34. And this is a very, very serious issue. In fact, if you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, you will be astonished to learn about the kinds of problems that they begin to encounter in their community because their hope is not fixed firmly in the resurrection. Let me tell you about some of their problems. There's a casualness, a premarital and extramarital sex because this life is all that they have to live for. There's socioeconomic divisions in the church because worldly wealth and status is their highest priority. There's racism because the love of neighbor takes a backseat to the love of self. It's insane. There are believers actually suing each other and taking each other to court because winning a dispute is more important than the unity of the church. There's factions in their community because people are arguing about who's the best preacher and leader. Some are saying, I follow my pastor. Others are saying, I follow this and that elder. And still others are completely fed up with leadership altogether, and they're saying, "I follow Christ." It's amazing, isn't it? Two thousand years have passed since Paul wrote this letter. Tell me, are we so very different from the Corinthian church? Grace Rano, we must pay heed. A failure to take the resurrection seriously leads this congregation to justify all kinds of loose, worldly, and selfish living both in and outside the church. See, I think Paul wants us to believe, like really believe in the resurrection and lean into our eternity because it's ultimately because of the resurrection that we have the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of an even better life. It's because of the resurrection that we have a reason as a church to love one another well and be united around Jesus. And it's because of the resurrection that we have a motivation to obey God and serve Him with our lives, even through hardship and suffering. That's why it matters to Paul. Do you see that? And he's adamant, he's adamant that we shouldn't lose sight of it. Because here's the good news, there is a resurrection of the dead, and Jesus made it possible. On the night before His crucifixion, He told His disciples about what was going to happen to Him. He told them about the cross, yes, and how He's going to pay the price for their sin. But He also told them about His resurrection through which they were all going to be changed. And then in the most astonishing fashion, Jesus flipped our passage on its heels. Taking bread and wine, he gave it to them, saying, let us eat and drink for tomorrow, tomorrow I will die. I will die. By that, he meant he wasn't going to live for himself alone and for the fleeting pleasures of this world. He was going to suffer for the sake of the gospel so that you and I wouldn't have to die. I want to tell you that as surely as this Jesus went to the cross, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, glorious and resurrected. And because he is resurrected, the gospel promises that you and I will one day join him and be with him forever. This is the glorious hope that we have in the gospel, men and women. I pray that we'd believe that. Now, what do we, what do, we do with this passage? How we would apply it? What, what does this mean for our lives? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, <laughs> you've heard a lot today about the resurrection life. I want you to see that in Jesus, there is more joy, more life, and more meaning than anything this present world can give you. I think Paul would ask you to wake up Wake up and see what is being offered to you in the gospel. Talk to someone about what it might mean for you to believe the resurrection life. I pray that you do that. For the Christian here, I think Paul calls you to believe in the resurrection that much more strongly and to actually live like it's your present reality. Live like it's your present reality. I think there are many aspects of doing that, but here's some quick principles from our text. First, consider your baptism. Consider your baptism. Remember that your life is united to the risen Jesus Christ, and He has willed that you should not only die to sin and self, but come alive to God. That is His purpose. And to that effect, He has also given you His Holy Spirit to help and be a guarantee So you ask the Spirit. You ask the Spirit to reaffirm in your heart that you belong to the risen Jesus. Ask Him to give you desires for eternity and to help you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Second, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Go tell people about the resurrection of Jesus. Don't be afraid of rejection or suffering. Because the same God who looked after Paul and led him all those years will look after you also. He will. Be bold and courageous with your unbelieving friends. Whether that's in the neighborhood, at school, or at work, God will help you. But you make the effort. Because as you do, if you do, I think the resurrection life will actually become more beautiful and more satisfying to you than if you were to actually keep it to yourself. do that. And third and finally, consider your company. Consider your company. I think Paul encourages us here to be mindful of who and what we allow to influence us as we strive for the Christian life. It's worth asking, who are you hanging out with? Whose opinions are you letting shape your Christian life? I would ask you to consider taking steps to form meaningful friendships with the people in this church It should be people who you trust and respect and who could hold you accountable to living the Christian life well. If you're a new believer, find someone to disciple you in the faith. If you're not sure how to go about that, come talk to someone on staff. We'd be happy to get you connected. And if you've been a believer, if you've been a committed believer for three or more years, listen, it's time to go disciple somebody. It is. You might not feel ready for that, but I want to push you. I want to give you a push. I think you'll be surprised by how much more effective and vibrant your Christian life will become when you're actually intentionally pouring into another brother or sister. If bad company produces bad morals, then good company will help in the resurrection life. Listen, maybe you're a senior. (laughs) and you're wondering if anyone in this church of young people notices you. You'd be surprised how many people are at church really want to be discipled by an older believer. Make yourself available. Maybe you're a mom and you're wondering if you really have the time to give to another living, breathing organism. Find someone who's expecting, who is going through a similar life stage as you. Help them navigate this new season with the help of Jesus. And listen, maybe you're a youth or a young adult at our church, and you're wondering, who in this church could I possibly disciple? Come join GT Kids and help our little ones learn about the hope of the resurrection. Look, whatever your life stage, all of us, I think, are in need of good gospel community and company. So let's make that happen as a church. Listen, you do these three things you do these three things, and by God's grace, I promise you our church will become a place that is known for its resurrection faith in Toronto. Let's pray. Triune God, we thank you for the work that you have done through the resurrection in raising your son Jesus from the dead and in bringing us the new life. Would you make us alive this morning that your word would be pleasing to us, that it would be good to us, that we would want to obey you with all of our lives and love you dearly, more than the pleasures and the comforts of this life. We ask that you give us tremendous strength and courage by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. We have some time now for uh, some Q&A, and so Ryan's gonna be helping with that.
2: Okay. Um, Yeah, we have a few questions. I have I have three questions that are kind of along a similar similar vein, so I'll I'll try to paraphrase them and just ask you one question. Um, I think people are trying to understand um, how does the hope of the resurrection, how does the resurrection life, um, how does it actually manifest itself today for me as a as a as a believer? What are um, yeah what what does it look like versus living? Uh, the resurrection life versus living kind of like for the here and now, what are like the differences? How does it actually look in a believer's life?
0: Hmm. That's a fair question. Thanks for that. Well, I think one of the things that Paul highlights here is that we're willing to take risks. We're willing to risk it all for Jesus, that the way we, um, the way we plan our lives, the way we coordinate our schedules makes room for Jesus and not just our own priorities, not just our own desires. Uh, I, I think this means that we're willing to bear suffering and we're willing to be rejected for all kinds of reasons because we follow Jesus. Uh, the difficult thing about this passage is that Paul's really talking about what's the point and he's giving a lot of questions to, uh, to, to help affirm why you should believe in the resurrection. I think in the rest of the series, as, as we're preaching through and, and looking at what are the other benefits of the resurrection? How does it help us? I think that will become a little bit more clear. Um, so, I, so I don't want to, to speak into that uh, prematurely, but, but we can always talk some more afterwards if you'd like. Hope that's helpful.
2: Great, and just maybe one more question. Um, isn't there something biblical as outlined in the book of Ecclesiastes about living for the here and now, about enjoying present pleasures?
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. You're sharp. But I like that. <laughs> that's very astute of you. Um, I love Ecclesiastes, and and one of the things you find that as uh, as the author is writing about that, he's talking about how everything is. Uh, how everything feels like it's, it's smoke, he uses this word hevel, it's not, it's not vanity, it's not meaningless, he's talking about how everything in this life it feels like a smoke or a vapor, you, you go to catch it and grasp it and it just disappears, it's not really there. And so he's, t- he's talking about the futility of life, but he's talking about the futility of life basically outside of the covenant how futile that life is actually without God. And so if you, if you read only part of Ecclesiastes, you, you'll find that he's working through an argument, having a conversation about what it means to live, um, live in and outside God. But if you, if you skip ahead to the end of Ecclesiastes, he, he says that there, there's nothing better, there's nothing better for, for man to uh, take pleasure in his toil, uh, to, to enjoy good food and drink. And he says that there's nothing better for us to obey God this, this is his conclusion. So, if you, if you pick up pieces of, of Ecclesiastes, it, it doesn't really make much sense, but it is building to a logical conclusion, and I think the the writer of Ecclesiastes would agree with Paul that to just, to just live for the simple pleasures now is, is good, and you should do that, but it would make no sense if you didn't have a bigger hope than that, and if you didn't belong to Jesus. So, hope that's helpful. Yeah. Maybe that's all we have time for, but if you have some other questions or comments afterwards, I'm, I'm happy to chat with you and talk some more. Thanks.